Must, must, okay. Now, do I need to repeat everything again? <laughs> okay, well, welcome everyone to our Sunday morning class. <clears throat> Unusual setup this morning. <clears throat> I hope everyone be, at least be able to look onto a handout because we will we'll be reading quite a bit from the from the handout this morning. <clears throat> This is a class on Isaiah, but we're calling it Studies in Isaiah rather than trying to make a complete study of the whole book of Isaiah. So we selected a a series of uh, several different topics that relate to the book of Isaiah rather than trying to cover the entire book verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So far... We're in chapter 5. That's as far as we've gotten so far. But we have looked at a few other places along. And we'll look at some additional passages as well as just what is here in chapter 5. But this is going to be the basis of our study this morning is here in Isaiah chapter 5. And if you have a Bible that has a heading on the top of the of the chapter, you'll see it's called the Song of the Vineyard. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. The song, Isaiah's Song of the Vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5. Let's go ahead and begin with a, a word of prayer. Our Father, we are grateful that we can come here this morning and give an attention to a study of your word. We're thankful that you have left us your message in your holy word. And we pray that you'll open our minds and open our hearts to the truths that are contained in your word, that we might learn those things to be useful and helpful for us as we seek to do your will. We pray, our Father, that you'll be with all of us in our various activities, that we will bring honor and glory to you and to the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay. The... I'm considering the entire chapter of chapter 5 as, as a part of this song of the vineyard. We'll see how it kind of ties in here. But, but let's go ahead and read, the, read this song uh, in um, the first few verses of chapter 5 of Isaiah. I will sing to the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up. Cleared it in uh, stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it, cut out a vine press as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruits. Now you dwellers of Jerusalem and men of Judea, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. And briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. 
for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Okay, first of all, I want to ask the question, why is this referred to as a song? What makes it a song? I don't see any musical staff here with lines and spaces and notes on, on the staff. I don't see any, any key signature in this song. I don't see any time signature. I don't see any notes going up and down on the staff. Why is it called a song? Does it look like a song to you? You know, if you open our song book, it looks a little bit different from what we see right here. Why is this called a song? You have any ideas? Well, the commentators recognize that this, in fact, is called a song when Isaiah begins saying, I will sing. So we see right off at the very beginning that he identifies it as a type, type of a song. And the commentators, of course, will, will recognize that the, the form of this passage is in the form of a song. But what is that form that makes it a song? Um, one of the uh, resources that we've been looking at uh, on the prophet Isaiah says that this is the most exquisite elegy. It is a parable in the form of a plaintive song concerning my beloved, his vengeance. Two of the uh, commentators we've been using uh, as a resource in this study, one written by James Burton Kaufman. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He was a, a preacher in the Churches of Christ for a good number of years. His last uh, tour duty, I believe, was at the Manhattan Church of Christ in New York City. And uh, when he retired from preaching, he moved to Houston, Texas, and lived there. And he spent his time writing a complete commentary on the whole Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, his commentary on Isaiah is one of the sources we've been using in this study. Another commentary we've been using is, uh, was written by the man named Homer Haley. He, too, was a member of the uh, Churches of Christ. Some of you may have heard of Homer Haley. He was a professor at Abilene Christian University. Uh, he also taught at Florida Christian College. And he wrote a commentary on Isaiah, and we've been referring to it uh, quite often. Then there's a third commentary that we've often uh, referred to, that, who is written not by a member of the Church of Christ, uh, but was written by a professor of Old Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary. And uh, his commentary on Isaiah is one of the better... In fact, James Burton Kaufman refers to Homer Haley's... Uh, 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 not Homer Haley's, but uh, Edward J. Young. Edward J. Young is this third one that I'm referring to. And <clears throat> Kaufman refers to that commentary as the best commentary on Isaiah available today. So those are the three main sources we've been using as a background to this study of Isaiah. And this is what he has to say about this particular section as being in the form of a song. And that's a quotation number four down here, middle of the page, down to the end. This chapter presents a striking example of the variety that might be employed by the prophets in the presentation of the message. There is the parable which Nathan told of the ewe lamb. I'm sure most of you are acquainted with that story, how Nathan used that story to... Uh, bring forth a lesson to, uh, to David. A Amos, on occasion, came forth with a dirge. Our Lord's parables concerning the vineyard are based upon this passage here in Isaiah chapter 5. One is immediately struck with the richness of imagery, the beauty of the language, 
and can agree with Skinner. Skinner was another commentator uh, on the uh, book of Isaiah, and he said in his commentary, one of the finest exhibitions of rhetorical skill and power which the book contains. Delich is an older German commentator on the book of Isaiah, uh, gives expression to the beauty of the language when he says, the winged rhythm, the euphonic music, the sweet essences of this appeal cannot be reproduced. And then Young goes on to say, And indeed, one cannot but be struck by the musical assonance of the passage. The reader should take his Hebrew Bible and read the entire parable aloud slowly and thoughtfully several times. Now, how many of you have a Hebrew Bible? Any of you have a Hebrew Bible? I have a Hebrew Bible, but it's been... Oh, so long since I've studied Hebrew that I dare not try to read this passage out loud in Hebrew. But he points out that if you'd read it, if you knew, if you know your Hebrew, you read it in Hebrew, you can see why it is called a song. He says the first verse alone, uh, you have these following essences which should be noted. And these are the actual English spelling of the Hebrew words at the bottom of this first page. In the top of the next page, and you can look and see how closely the words uh, are in spelling. So even in the, spe- in the English spelling of these words, you can see how they relate to one, one another. <clears throat> At the beginning of a po- po- poetic work in which God is praised, the verb to sing is often used in a couple of passages mentioned there. And as I mentioned, this is from the Commentary of Isaiah by Edward J. Young. So the, pure, the, uh, the poetic beauty and the judicious choice of words and the careful arrangement of the structure make it an appealing song. So it's the type of words that are used, how the words are arranged, and uh, how they uh, sound when they are sung out loud. You can tell that it was written to be sung as a song. Now, can you imagine Isaiah walking along the streets, and all of a sudden he bursts out in a song? And the people <clears throat> say, well, what, what's he singing about? And that, and that way he can catch his, the, the attention of the people and the message he's trying to get across, across to them. Now, you notice at the very end of this reading, verse 7, that uh, the interpretation, the meaning of the song is given. Now, why wouldn't he put the meaning at the very beginning so when you start hearing the song, you'd know what he's singing about? Why Do you have any ideas why it's put here at the end rather than at the beginning of the song? Any thoughts or comments on that? Anyone? Yes. Yes, Steve? Dramatic attention, okay. Yeah. Here's what my thought about it is that uh, he did this on purpose so that uh, when they got to the end, it's, oh, oh, that's what he's talking about. And it would force them to go back and reread it, or they would call out to Isaiah, sing it again, sing it again. And he'd sing it again, and they, with this, this understanding of the meaning of the song in mind, say, oh, yeah, that's right, yeah, sure. So in this way, he kind of forces the reader to go back and read it all again with this understanding of what it's about in mind. It's, it's somewhat like an artist, an artist who paints a picture. 
he will uh, paint a picture with his main subject in a certain spot, and then he'll put in indicators of what, where you're supposed to look. Uh, you, there'll be leading lines. There'll be a contrast in colors. There will be shapes of objects around there that will force you to look at the picture in a certain way. And once you see it, then you go back and you look at it again and see how it all fits together. And I think that's maybe what Isaiah is doing here when he puts the meaning of the song at the very end and, and people say, Ah, oh, yeah, sure. Go back and look, look at it and see, yeah, that fits, that's right. So <clears throat> we can see that the song is about the, <clears throat> the vineyard that the Lord uh, planted and how it uh, became uh, <clears throat> unproductive and yielded bad fruit. <clears throat> and the application is, as uh, Isaiah says, that the, <clears throat> that the vineyard is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. Now, <clears throat> I think we can see now how that the vineyard does... Uh, correspond to the people people of Israel. And uh, that's the main point of, of the song. But <clears throat> Some people may go too far by trying to identify the details of the song. For example, uh, might, might say that the garden would be the land of Canaan. Well, that kind of makes sense. Uh, the stones that had to be cleared out would represent the Canaanites that had to be driven out of the land before they, before they could be planted into the land of Canaan. Well, that kind of makes sense. Uh, the tower that he built in the, in the vineyard to stand up to protect the, uh, uh, the vineyard could stand for the temple, the temple of Jerusalem, because they believed as long as the temple of Jerusalem stood, they were protected from their enemies. Uh, and and that this, uh, this vine, vine press here, someone might, might say, well, you know, that kind of sign sounds like an altar. This is the altar of the temple where they offered their sacrifices. Well, I don't know. That might be going a little bit too far in trying to identify the details of, of, the, uh, of the parable. You know, it's like some people misuse the parables of Jesus in the New Testament, trying to make all the minor details stand for something rather than looking at the main point and the one significant idea that's been being tried uh, to be uh, presented in, in the parable. So this is referred to as a parable, but a parable in the form of a song. And so this is the song of, of the vineyard and uh, how that, uh, yes, it is compared to the nation of Israel and how God cared for the nation of Israel and how he did, yes, in a sense, planted Israel in the land of Canaan, how he cared for it and provided for it and, and uh, brought it up. And he wanted the, his people to be a good people, but just like the vine in the, in the vineyard, uh, he looked for good grapes, good people, good, uh, good worshipers of him, but it yield, yielded bad. <clears throat> the word that is translated here, bad grapes, <clears throat> he only, only yielded bad, might be a little bit uh, not strong enough, not strong enough, because the word uh, does indicate something that is, <clears throat> that is completely off base. Sour, we might use the term sour grapes. That's an expression we even use today sometimes, sour grapes. Um, but even stronger than that, um, <clears throat> it... Uh, it may uh, refer to something that has turned rotten. 
has turned poisonous, in fact. In fact, the word that is used here to refer to these bad grapes is a word that appears in a story in the Old Testament that talks about a, a, a pot that has become deadly, a deadly pot. And so um, it's a strong expression of how the people have turned against God and rejected uh, his, um, <clears throat> his dictates. Uh, Let's see, uh, toward the bottom of page 2 here, there's another quotation I, I see here um, from the, um, uh, a complete literary guide to the Bible in which it uh, talks about the, this section. It says, in addition to its structural artistry, Isaiah is also just, justly fam- famous for his verbal and syntactical artistry. Isaiah contains several outstanding examples of paranomasia, an onomatopoeia. The former device is illustrated here in verse 7 of this chapter, which plays on the antithetical meaning of words that sound similar in Hebrew. And this is from the, that study of the Old Testament standpoint, literary, the complete literary guide to the Old Testament. Now, if you saw these words in the original Hebrew and pronounced them, you'd see how closely these words resemble each other. When it says, looking for justice, the Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. But instead, what he found was bloodshed. And the Hebrew word for bloodshed is nispah. You see how closely those words are to you. Mishpat or mishpah. And the word for righteousness is the word zedekah. But he looked for zedekah, righteousness. But instead, he found cries, which the Hebrew word is ziakah. There again, you see how closely the, the words resemble each other. And uh, Young uh, refers to this when he says, The striking assonance is an example of Isaiah's eloquence in language. And so... <clears throat> There have been attempts to try to reproduce in English this, uh, this uh, device that Isaiah uses here by using some English words that do sound similar uh, in meaning that are close in spelling. For example, you might write down, he looked for justice, but instead he found injustice. Or he, he looked for justice, but when what he found, he found just us. Uh, uh, one, one has suggested that uh, perhaps it could be translated, he looked for measure, right measure, but instead he found massacres, measure, massacres. And then as far as uh, the word for righteousness, uh, we could say he looked for righteousness, but he found unrighteousness. He looked for the right way, but instead he found people insisted on, I want my way. Or I have the right of way. Instead of the right way, they found, they found people who were insisting on the right of having the right of way. So in this way, the attempts are try, uh, made to try to, to um, indicate the, the similarity in sound uh, to represent opposite meanings in that. Okay, uh, now, that's the song. And I suggest that the rest of the chapter goes along with that song. Now, what we have here is a description of these sour grapes, these uh, poisonous grapes, these bad grapes, in a list here of six different woes. You look down uh, from verse 8 on down, you see, see the word woe is repeated six different times. And so I would suggest that we might uh, consider this description 
of the vine gone bad as a, a cluster of six grapes, six different clusters of grapes, and all of them have gone bad. Look at the first one here in verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. And this is exactly what happened uh, in the time of Isaiah as the rich were becoming rich by obtaining the lands and the properties of the poor. Um, <clears throat> The word woe here, woe is how it's normally translated. Um, the new revised standard version just used the word ah, ah. In fact, there's one version that uh, translates the word as shame on you, shame on you, shame on you each time it appear, appears here. The original Hebrew word is the word hoi, hoi. And you see how it almost sounds like the word woe, woe, hoy, hoy. And here what we have is a, all of these six different hoys, all these six different woes, uh, a description of a corrupt, corrupt society, a decaying corrupt society. This is how Kaufman describes uh, the description here. The corrupt society which at this point reached a degree of wickedness that would result in their final overthrow. And then he applies it to other cultures and other societies as well. Every so-called civilized society can read in this chapter the prophecy of their own doom. Here are presented a salient features, the salient features of a human society on the way down. So if you, <clears throat> you want to make an a, a practical application or a modern application of it, just look at these descriptions of our own society today that we're living in today. Could Isaiah cry out to us today in our modern society, Hoy! Woe! Shame on you! What are you doing? Well, the first one he mentions here is how the greedy, covetous, and land barons are grabbing at the property till no space is left. And this is an expression of a gross materialism, uh, ambitious concentrations of wealth and power. Um, another commentary that I've been looking at is the uh, New Interpreter's uh, Bible that um, I don't have a complete set, but it's a complete set of commentaries on the, both the Old Testament and New Testament. It is available in our public library downtown. Uh, and... Uh, it, this is what it has to say about uh, these uh, land barons, these uh, uh, rich who are grabbing up the property. He said, those who join house to house, who add field to field, subvert the ancient order concerning land. So the greedy development of large estates by the few and the, at the expense of the many is social and economic injustice creating or expanding a class of homeless people. And that's what Isaiah was facing in his day, uh, that the rich were becoming rich by, uh, <clears throat> by disrespecting the, the poor and grabbing up the property of the poor, the homes of the poor, the land of the poor, and in result creating a uh, society that was uh, full of homeless individuals. Um, okay, so there, there we have one of the woes, one of the 
clusters of bad grapes, of sour grapes. Then the next one, next woe, beginning verse, uh, <clears throat> verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after the drinks, their drinks who stay up late at night till they are flamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Their men of rank will die of hunger, and their masses will be parched with thirst. Therefore, the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limit. And to all who descend into their, until it will descend, their nobles and ma- uh, masses uh, with all the brawlers and all the revelers. Can you picture these people here getting together in a large crowd and listening to a musical concert while being intoxicated? Perhaps today, if we, if we would describe this, we'd say that they were, they were high. They were, <clears throat> they were intoxicated with their drugs at the, uh, at the rock concert that they are attending. And uh, so uh, they... Um, Join in with the revelies um, of the of the of the crowd. Um, <clears throat> here, here, uh, toward the bottom of the page, uh, page three. Here, the, uh, another quotation from Edward J. Young when he's describing the situation. Here, he says, "Isaiah is not condemning music as such. Music is one of God's greatest gifts to man." What is condemned is the usage of which musical instruments are put at the drunken carousals, so that the noise of these instruments, as it were, would drown out the voice of conscience. The songs that were sung and the music that was present at such occasions were not of an ennobling, ennobling or elevating kind. Um, Later on, uh, a few more chapters later on in, in the book, chapter 24, you'll find what happened to their music and their reveling and their singing and their drinking and their carousing. Where in chapter 24, in verses 7 through 11, it says, The new, dw- new wine dries up, and the wine vi- withers, and the vine wi- withers. Here, perhaps referring back to this song of the vineyard. Here about the vine. All the merrymakers groan. The gaiety of the tambourines is still. The noise of the revelers has stopped. The joyful heart, harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to the drinkers. And the streets, in the streets they cry for wine. All joy turns to gloom. All gaiety is banished from the earth. So this is how uh, Isaiah is describing what's going to happen to these uh, drunken carousals, carousing uh, to the instruments of music and, and in their rock concerts as they uh, uh, get together and have, uh, have what they consider to be a good time. It's going to come a time when all this will be put to an end. Okay, third rule. Uh, verses 18 and 19. Those who mock at God, 18 and 19, Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so that uh, so we may see it. 
Let it approach. Let the plans of the Holy One of Israel come so we may know it. Point out another artistic uh, way of presenting something is uh, the use of chiasmus. Now, <clears throat> we referred several times already about a use this particular type of of, uh, of device in, in presenting an idea. A chiastic structure is a is a good example here. We we have with cords of deceit, wickedness with cart ropes. An A B B A. Now next week we're going to have, we'll probably spend a whole a whole session on just looking at Isaiah's use of chiasmus. But here is a good example of the A B B A sort of construction uh, in in chiasmus, and it describes uh, these people as being slaves to their idols and their sins. You can almost picture them pulling their idols behind them on on carts. They're enslaved to their idols. <clears throat> They harness with their falsehoods and their idolatry. It's a picture of a group of pagan worshipers drawing the cart of a great idol. The language is scoffing uh, of these scoffing materialists as they say, okay, God, or Isaiah, uh, speaking in behalf of God, who says these things are going to come about, and they, they mock him and say, oh, yes, well, let's see it. You say this is going to happen? Well, bring it on. Let us see it. Um, <clears throat> The language of scoffing materialists. Does that remind you of anything that you you remember from the New Testament? You know, it sounds sounds similar to what uh, what you might find in in the New Testament. Oh, we we see this reference here to Second Peter chapter three. You remember what what uh, that, what that says <clears throat> there in chapter three in verses three and four. I'll have it here in just a minute here. If I back before John. Okay, chapter 3, verse 3, 4. First of all, I'm sure, this is a passage I'm sure you're all familiar with, but to remind you and how it kind of relates to what Isaiah is saying right here. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, now that expression, last days, you remember we talked quite a bit about uh, what that refers to here. Now, where Isaiah talked about in the latter days or in the last days and how we identified when those last days are. He said, in the last days, scoffers, they're the scoffers. Say, uh, the very same thing that Isaiah is describing here, these scoffers uh, who will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming you promised? Ever since your fathers died, everything goes on as it was since the beginning of creation. Well, isn't that exactly what these people are doing here? Bring it on, Isaiah. If what you're saying is true, let us see it. Bring it along. And so <clears throat> they are scoffed. So this is another one of the, the woes or one of the uh, cluster of sour grapes that Isaiah is calling attention to here. <clears throat> And then uh, the, right below that, the next woe, <clears throat> the next cluster of sour grapes in, uh, in verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Here again is that use of chiasmus, the A-B-B-A arrangement here. Call evil good, good evil. Darkness light, light darkness. Bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter, A-B-B-A. 
And as I said, uh, next week we'll probably go in more detail on how Isaiah uses this type of, of construction. Um, so, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> Isaiah uses this uh, technique a, a good number of times throughout, throughout his book. And Jesus also used it. You remember uh, the sayings of Jesus sometimes would use this kind of instruction. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. A, B, B, A. That is just a basic uh, four-element uh, four chiasmus. And the A, B, B, A construction. Okay, number five, the proud egotistical intellectuals in verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. The uh, <clears throat> description here of these uh, egotistical intellectuals sounds almost like what Paul said when he said in Romans chapter 1, uh, referring to those who profess themselves to be wise, they have become fools. Okay, now then, number six. Number six, verses 22 through 23, uh, 23 uh, again referring to the drinking of the people. But here is specifically applied to the judges, the rulers, uh, the uh, counselors of the people who uh, become drunk and corrupt in their decisions, 22 through 23. Uh, <clears throat> Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deny justice to the innocent. Social injustice is what Isaiah is referring to here. <clears throat> the drunken, corrupt, crooked judges that were in, uh, in his society. Um, here's another statement from uh, the interpreter's uh, Bible that uh, describes what is going on here in uh, verse 24. Um, the similes compare the fate of the accused with uh, uh, fire and stubble, grass and flame, artistically reversing the subjects, he says here. So uh, <clears throat> then, okay, those are the six woes, are the six clusters of grapes that uh, he describes here that have become rotten and evil and corrupt and even poisonous. Now, the rest of the chapter... From chapter uh, <clears throat> 26 uh, to the end, describes the enemy that's going to come to punish uh, the people because of the way that they have beheld. Be Notice the interesting way that uh, Isaiah describes how God calls the people. He says, He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come, swiftly and speedily. Did you ever picture, G uh, ever picture God as a whistler? He whistles. He calls him. You know, like, like a, <clears throat> a person out in the field with his dog, and he whistles for the dog to come? Well, God whistles for the, in, for the enemy to come to punish his people. And notice, you have a good description here of what will later be identified as the Assyrian army. It's not specifically named here as the Assyrians, but uh, from the context and future descriptions, it clearly refers to the Assyrians who God is going to use as his instrument to punish his people. And uh, so uh, he lifts up a banner 
uh, for the distant nations, that no doubt is referring to the Syrians. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth, referring to the Syrians. And here they come, swiftly and speedily. And you read through these verses and you see the description of, of the enemy as it, as it comes. Uh, <clears throat> at the bottom of page four of the handout here, uh, Edward J. Young, his comment says, The course and destinies of the nations are in the hands of God. A nation may deceive itself into thinking that is taking matters in its own hands. The Syrians thought that in entering upon a course of aggression, they were on their own. They, don't, uh, they did not consider that they were but tools in the hands of the sovereign God of Lord of hosts. Actually, they moved only because God in his providence permitted them to move. So here we have one of those famous passages in the Bible that shows how that God does at times use foreign nations and foreign enemies to punish his people. Now you make your own application to our modern society today. Here we have the description of the the Assyrian army. You see their speed, their energy, their equipment, their weapons, their, their, their horses, their chariots, and how they're described here in these verses. He compares them to a lion. In fact, the lion was the national symbol of the Assyrians. And when the people in those days would read about the description of the lion, they would automatically associate it with the Assyrians. And so, like a lion is ready to pounce on its prey, up to this point, the description has moved along as if marching in clauses from two to four words each. Now it changes into a slow heavy pace, and then in a few clauses, it springs like a lion on its prey. And so the first line should perhaps be read very slowly with pauses in the words, their roar is like that of the lion. They roar like young lions. Then quickly, as if the lion were springing, they growl, they, uh, they seize their praise and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. If one looks at the land, he will see darkness and distress. Even the light will be darkened by the clouds. And note again here in verse 30 that uh, references to in that day. All the way through uh, these chapters, we've already seen how Isaiah uses the expression in the last days or in that day, and we've talked about what that that is referring to already on several occasions. So here we have the song of the vineyard, the description of the people that have become sour and rotten and poisonous in their activities and how that God is going to punish them by bringing a foreign nation to them and uh, uh, on through the rest of the book of Isaiah, we'll see descriptions of this foreign enemy, the Assyrians, and how God is using these uh, foreign nations to uh, carry about his purposes. So, although nations may be influenced by all kinds of motives, God, in his providence, controls and is moving behind them to accomplish his eternal purposes. And this is one of those famous uh, passages in Isaiah where he brings out that God is in control of all the events of history. He is the God of history. And he is working uh, in his own way by bringing about his purposes in this world by, by his divine providence. Okay.
What do you think? Any ideas or comments or observations for anyone on, on this particular chapter in Isaiah? We have maybe about two and a half minutes, one and a half minutes. <laughs> anyone want to respond or, or comment in any way before we close? Okay, let's go ahead and close uh, with a word of prayer and we'll, we'll assemble for our worship service and look forward to our fellowship uh, together after, after our morning service. Our Father, we are grateful that uh, we can assemble here and to uh, consider the message that you have left with us in your holy word. We're thankful that we can read these words. We're thankful for all those who sacrifice their time and their very lives in preserving these words for us that we can read them today. And we pray that these words will encourage us and point us in the right way that we might become the people that you'd want us to be as we live in this modern age today in the face of all sorts of activities and temptations that are around us. And we pray that we might be able to withstand the influence of evil in this world. Uh, Be with us now in our worship together as we assemble. May it be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.